0: This is Patty Boyd, and you're listening to Everything Fab Four. Mm. Everything Fab Four, a podcast focused on fun and intelligent stories about the Beatles. I'm your host, Ken Womack, music culture columnist for Salon.com and a Beatles scholar and historian. No other band, or popular phenomenon for that matter, has enjoyed the global impact the Beatles have and continue to have more than 50 years later. They are part of our human fabric. They created music that continues to bring people together. And just about everyone has their own Beatles story to tell. Some that are surprisingly deep and unexpected. This show seeks to draw those stories out in interesting and insightful ways. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everyone has a story.
1: My producer, Tyler Chester, gave me two CDs as a gift. And um, one was Rubber Soul, and the other was Abbey Road. And I was like, oh, this this is... these are the Beatles, and I was also driving my grandpa's truck. I, I put in the music, and the first song that came on was "Come Together," and I, my, like everything just kind of stopped and became still. And so my mind was seriously blown. Like I, I'll never forget that moment.
0: Today's guest is Madison Cunningham, a Grammy Award-winning American singer-songwriter. Cunningham grew up in Costa Mesa, California, where she started playing guitar at seven years old, often performing in church, where her father served as pastor. Over the years, she has been influenced by a wide range of artists, from the Beatles, Joni Mitchell and Bob Dylan, to Juana Molina, Fiona Apple, and Jeff Buckley. Cunningham made her recording debut in 2014 with the self-released gospel album, Authenticities, which reflected her exploration of faith she was only just beginning. In 2017, Cunningham joined the cast of American Public Media's Live From Here. In 2019, she released her breakthrough LP, Who Are You Now?, which earned a Grammy nomination for Best Americana Album. Her 2020 EP, Wednesday, featured cover versions of songs by Tom Waits, Radiohead, and The Beatles, while also earning a Grammy Award nomination for Best Folk Album. In 2022, she released her follow-up LP, Revealer, which enjoyed extensive critical acclaim. Relics, for example, described her guitar riffs as intricate, experimental, and rhythmically dense, adding that perhaps it's her voice, rich in country rock earthiness, yet expressive on a technical level. Maybe it's the vividly painted character portraits that anchor her lyrics. Whatever your entry point is, the California native expertly balances weirdness and warmth. Consequence lauded Cunningham as a master of arranging inimitable indie rock gems and as an incredible guitar player, period. With Revealer, Cunningham earned two more Grammy Award nominations, including Best American Roots Performance for her song, Life According to Rachel, and Best Folk Album, for which she won her first Grammy Award. Welcome, Madison Cunningham. Congratulations on the Grammy win. That is so fantastic.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much.
0: And uh, I've just, I've been so enjoying uh, the album. Which one? Revealer. Is it Revealer or The Revealer? It's just Revealer. Nice. And of course, our Beatles fans out there will think Revolver. And they, they... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and they can do that all they want. Um,
1: very true. I had I had that. That sort of, you know, uh, question, reasonable doubt in my head where I was like, I feel like people are going to read it. Someone said Revolver the other day and I was like, oh, no, no, no. It's definitely Revealer. But I knew I knew that those comparisons would be drawn and went for it anyway.
0: There are worse things.
1: (laughs) Yeah, for sure.
0: So what is so what is a Revealer? How do you see the Revealer, the concept? Because, of course, there is no title track called Revealer.
1: Right, there's actually <clears throat> no lyric across the whole record that even says Revealer. But, <clears throat>
0: um,
1: you know, Revealer was a title that I've had for like five years and um, I had wanted, uh, uh, you know, to use it at some point and <clears throat> it felt like um, it, it was aligned with sort of like all of the themes that were happening in the album and I to me it's like a a, a character that's you know neither negative or positive that's kind of just like unveiling um the the truth behind everything and to me revealer or the revealer is is grief because I think grief does that very thing which is kind of illuminate you know the you know the truest parts of ourselves, whether, whether we wish it did or didn't. Um, and I, you know, that's kind of the, that's what the album's kind of laced with is, is that idea. Well,
0: you can definitely hear that. Yeah. That it's, that, that grief is almost kind of a a litmus test about a person and their character and how they experience things.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's often really disappointing to see, to see yourself in that light and, uh, you know, sometimes how weak you really are, <laughs> yeah. um, or how strong too, uh, you know, I think, I think it, it can surprise you either way. And, um, but yeah, you know, also I just thought the name sounded really cool
0: <laughs> <laughs> and it does. And it, it, you know, I'm, I, uh, I'm a university professor and half of my work is in English literature and, uh, I immediately thought of poetry, right? A revealer is a kind of I don't know, a shaman or something, but somebody who sees behind human experience and literally reveals something about it.
1: Oh, I really like that. I like that a lot.
0: Well, feel free to steal it. It's there for you.
1: <laughs> I will definitely that that is my job. We steal things. <laughs>
0: So, let's let's talk about this job of yours. So, um do you, did you have a musical background? Do you come from a musical family?
1: I do. Yeah, my my grandmother um was a was a fabulous um guitar player, um really good finger picker, and then um kind of trailing down from her, my dad was a is a guitar player musician and then uh, I think that's kind of where i uh first first saw it at play um was in his hands and and you know it was just always around and um uh, so i i apparently was rumored to have um kind of started to reach for his guitar when i was about like three or four huh. so it was always something that i was like you know apparently very interested in and then by the time i was seven i really started Um, playing and, you know, bursting my, my fingers open while trying to, trying to get my calluses, um, strong enough to really hold down chords. Um, also, sorry, I sound like an AI bot right now. My voice is like apparently going away. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I
0: I hope it comes back.
1: (laughs) I know. Right. We we would hope.
0: (laughs) So did you do you have like you know I, this is such a common question but here it goes you know triteness be damned it, it, do you do you remember your earliest guitar
1: Oh yeah it was it was a I I swear to god it was a baby Taylor and I don't have any photo proof of this but I remember it was it was really the body was really small um and I we don't even have it anymore I don't know what ended up happening to it. But that was, that was the first guitar that was like bought for me. Um, and then I learned on that cause it was small enough for, for my hands. And then, and then we lost track of it. And I remember playing my dad's like sunburst guitar and it, that thing would still look really, really big next to me now. But at that, you know, at seven or eight, nine and 10, I started like transitioning to that guitar. Um, Cause I, I think I just, you know, lost track of the baby Taylor. I have no idea
0: where is that uh, thing.
1: <laughs> I don't know. I just it's it just joined the other Taylors or something.
0: <laughs> did you? Is there a point when you started writing songs, or re, did you study music at school? Did these sorts of things happen?
1: Well, this is this is an interesting piece of the the backdrop, which is I was homeschooled. So I was, I, you know, my education in music was, was, you know, I had a piano teacher for a little while and, um, you know, that, that didn't last for very long. And I kind of just, you know, all of it was really ear training and listening to songs and just kind of being obsessed with guitar. And I, guitar and writing kind of went hand in hand and I started when I was, um, yeah I probably started writing songs when I was like seven or eight as well. It just kind of you know they went together, apparently, I was very sad at seven and eight and had stuff to write about. I don't know I mean, you don't have to be sad to write songs, but they were very sad and i and no i will I will never never show them to anybody
0: okay well, that was my next question so <laughs> I, I will scratch that one off Cut um, that down <laughs> i we were in my uh my, I teach a course on Bruce Springsteen in the spring aptly enough and um, we were talking about his uh, he had several lines um, about how he's attracted to singing songs about the blues right and and, and he's hmm. not the only one you know to to craft a line like that but what is it about about sad songs do you think um, that it does seem to exist in our DNA and, and revealer then makes a lot of sense in terms of, of these stories that we keep coming back to tell.
1: I, you know, I think sadness is something that is, is we're all in tune with more than our own happiness. Like I, I, I feel like, you know happiness is still an elusive idea and what that means and and how to find it and how to keep it but sadness is kind of rooted it's planted always it's always you know um lurking so i think i think anytime somebody sings to it it's it's just like it it strikes and and people can relate to that and um you know, but it's really hard to to write a joyful song well, or or in a way that's not just like, you know, made to dance to, or which is I think is um, maybe a missed opportunity. I think there's there's a way to to tap into that, uh, you know, that's not just for clubs or just for dancing or just you know what I mean. I I think I think, and I'm sure it's been done. I'm I'm not saying that it hasn't, but but for me, I feel. I'm quite gratified when my songs feel dark, and I've, you know, I talk to my songwriting buddies all the time about this, which is like, how how do we also write sad music that doesn't make people want to like kill themselves? Like, <laughs> for real. Like, there's <laughs> there's a lot of music right now that's just like so sad and self-involved and in its in its own head. That um, how do we still write Music with perspective, um, if there is any, you know. Um, so, I yeah, I, I guess the answer to that is we all like sadness is a common language.
0: It is, and it it as your new as your new album suggests, it is wrapped up in loss, um, and even a kind of of nostalgia, I suppose, for the thing we lost, um, but. It's just uncanny, and it uh, i I guess if we had to look for a happy song I what walking on sunshine or something like that
1: well <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness, I mean, here comes the sun I feel like you know that's a that's a beautifully whimsical happy song, and uh, not to like jump the gun, but I feel like the Beatles probably did that very well
0: I would I would have to agree with you there are a number of songs that I, I like to think of as being almost impressionistic, right? Where yeah. maybe they're not telling you anything in particular. I mean, Here Comes the Sun, the title is saying a lot of it. Um, or Dear Prudence. Yeah. You know, songs that there is a there is this positive energy to it. And maybe that's one of the reasons they're an outlier. So, So when did you discover this Beatles band? You know, like me, you're not a first-generation fan. We discovered them after it was all over.
1: Right. Right. Well, this is another interesting fact, like in, in my background, my parents just didn't, I don't have recollection of them playing a lot of music around the house. And um, specifically, I remember my dad saying like, I just don't like the Beatles. And he made a point of saying that. And I was like, well, but who are the Beatles? You know, I never had any context for who that was. Um, So By the time I was graduating high school, I was 17, probably going on 18 that fall. And I was working on my first ever album and of songs that I had, you know, written when I was like um, 14, 15, 16, et cetera. And uh, at the end of it was my graduation date and my producer, Tyler Chester, Uh, gave me two CDs as a gift and um, one was Rubber Soul and the other was Abbey Road and I was like oh this is this is these are the Beatles Um, and another another you know important piece to the context was I was I was uh, deep in in my first job which was uh, I was delivering cookies around Orange County for this for this business that was taking off and and i was also driving my grandpa's truck because uh my car was out of commission for some reason and his truck did not have ac but it did have um a, a a radio and a cd player so i i put in the music and the first song that came on was come together and i my like everything just kind of stopped and became still because i had heard these songs, just probably, you know, out in the wild somewhere, or like over the speakers at a restaurant, or whatever, and, and it, it kind of was like, you know, the ultimate version of putting the, uh, the the name to the voice. And so my mind was seriously blown. Like I, I'll never forget that moment. And what I hadn't realized was that I didn't I didn't roll the windows down, and all the cookies had melted. <laughs> Um, but I, I didn't bother to, I kind of noticed it and thought, oh, eh, it'll be fine. Whatever she, uh, at least they're on time or whatever. So I, I, I gave them to the lady at the farmer's market and she was so pissed at me that she made me wait in some office for like an hour. And, and when she came in and she was kind of like, okay, well, what do you have to say for yourself? My, my actual defense was like, have you ever heard? abbey road and she didn't care but that that i i feel in and hindsight that was a good enough excuse my 17 year old brain was was all over the dashboard i was i was it really did um you know ch- change um the musical landscape for me
0: we'll be back with more from madison cunningham after these messages We're back with more from everything Fab Four. I had a very similar, you know, some decades before, but a very similar uh, experience discovering them where they must have always, they did always exist. They were, you know, well broken up, et cetera, et cetera. Um, um, They actually were all four still alive, but... Sadly, barely um, at that point. But the the point is, it was. It, I had the same kind of feeling where it was like, where have these songs been all my life? Um, but they were always there, and I know I had to have heard them, right? Like you said, it's you know, it's it's proliferate. It's in this. It's in restaurants. It's everywhere.
1: I you know I do wonder if you know even even at the time that the songs came out. And people were hearing them in real time. If, if the, those audience did, audiences didn't feel the same way, because they, they, it's like, it feels like they are songs that have just always existed. Um, cause they, they, they're just, they're timeless and classic. So it's almost like no matter what time in your life you discover them, they're still, it's still relevant or, you know, almost, feels like it pre way, way, way predates the time that, that you, that you would have found it no matter when you found it, you know?
0: Yeah, sure. They exist in this kind of, this kind of time capsule. And I don't mean that as in dated or, or what have you, they just exist in this kind of locked space. Um,
1: and untouchable. Yeah.
0: Right. And you know, you, 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 you brought up the word classic, which I love when it comes to songwriting, but it's real, right? I mean, yeah. when you hear a song, um, like Here Comes the Sun, which is the most streamed Beatles song, always has been. Um, mm. And uh, I love that for George Harrison. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, cause he took a lot of crap there for a while and uh, to be on top like that is, uh, is pretty meaningful. Yeah, Um, And he also had the last number one hit by any of the solo Beatles, Got My Mind Set on You. So way to go, George.
1: I love the underdog. I love the underdog (laughs)
0: always. (laughs) But the the word classic, right? I mean, when you hear a song like one you've covered in my life, um, they had to know when they made that thing in October 1965 that they'd nailed it that even before they plastered on, you know, George Martin's piano solo, it had to have been, um, a looking glass moment where you finish that and you think, you know, damn, this is better than a lot of our other songs. <laughs> right. I mean, that you that's think, a real yeah. thing, right. When we hear music and when you're writing it, you can tell when something's a cut above. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I guess, I guess like, like, if you know, when you, when you write songs or something, you can tell when something is like, ah, needs work, but has potential. Or when you're like, ah, oh, no, I've, I need to buy myself a drink. That's a good song, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but the, like, imagine being the Beatles and operating on, you know, within that sort of um, echelon and being like, I mean, I, I, I would imagine they seemed fairly humble, at least at least some of them. So there there was probably still a level of like they were still fighting for for something good they were still you know up against a good song always always trying to find it, you know
0: and that's the journey right that you're on as a songwriter. you're trying to find that too, so I wonder if you could give our our listeners a sense of of what your process is like, you know um. Because it has become, you know, you're, I understand you're not delivering cookies anymore, right? This is, this is the job.
1: <laughs> the good news is that was my first and last job out, outside of music, which is um, very lucky, very lucky. and um, But also, you know, uh, requires uh, your focus and hard work. And, um, you know, my process is definitely taken on different shapes but now um what's kind of fun about it for me is I feel like I understand uh myself enough to know what will get me from the beginning to the end of a song and usually I'm I come to the table with an idea and and meaning kind of a musical Idea Whether it's like a melody or a guitar thing or a progression or a beat or something. And from there, I usually kind of finish the whole arrangement. Like I know where the verse is and where the chorus is and where it's all kind of um, headed. And then after that, the melody and lyrics kind of kind of emerge from me just um, just just throwing throwing eggs at the wall <laughs> and being which one sticks and um and that's that's usually like how how the words and the concept will form i never there's only a few times where i've come to the you know i've I've come with a concept first usually that uh, makes itself clear somewhere down the line after the music um and that, you know, that has changed. Sometimes, sometimes lyrics will come first or there's like a lyric idea that I jot down and I, I know that it'll go somewhere at some point. But, but uh, you know, as time has gone on, it's that, that sort of pattern of writing and finishing a song has, has pretty much remained um, pretty religious.
0: It's interesting how everyone has their own process, whether it's You know, writing a book or a story or a song um, that, you know, is integrally yours. And you can hear about how other people write songs. And it's very interesting when we learn about how other people approach their craft. But... It's true, right? There's almost no getting around what it takes for you to write a song, right? <laughs> Whereas, you know, you can hear about how Lennon and McCartney wrote songs, eyeball to eyeball, or however they used to describe it. But that doesn't necessarily help you, right?
1: Exactly. Well, it's like, it's like diets, you know? It's like so many people fall into bad diets because they want somebody to tell them exactly how to lose weight but we kind of always forget to factor in that everybody responds to you know food or whatever or exercise completely differently and the most annoying part about seeing real change is like going on your own adventure and seeing like what will actually work for you and I think songwriting is the same way it's like yeah you exactly like you just said you can you know, read books, uh, you know, about how all the greats have done it, but ultimately you have to know what really, you know, brings it out of you. And I, I believe in, you know, my process does, like I said, look very similar every time, but I do believe in shaking up the process and finding, you know, going somewhere or, um, you know, uh, trying to, trying to, you know, pick up a new instrument that doesn't really make a lot of sense to you and try and write from there. Or you just, you, you truly never know what will metabolize into something that, you know, is inspiring to you.
0: So I, you must then when you're seeking inspiration, um, go to some of your touchstones. I mentioned, you know, in my life before, Um, And I, I've watched and and I encourage our listeners to do this, the beautiful uh, rendition, uh, and it's a video, in fact, on YouTube, folks can see where you're performing in a kind of duet with, is it Mike Viola?
1: Mike Viola, yeah.
0: I mean, it's just gorgeous. And it's mostly the In My Life We Know and Love, but it's, it's, it's the little things, isn't it, that, that, that make a cover (laughs) version so interesting. Can you tell tell us about your approach to that song?
1: Yeah, we that that sort of um, uh, version came together really quick because Mike and I actually were playing a show together and we wanted to find something to to sing, and we both just were like, "What we should do something by the Beatles?" And then I threw that one out, and um, and we kind of just because we did we had so little time, we stuck to the pretty much the basic structure. And then we changed some slight melodic things to work with the harmonies we were, we were building. And, um, and afterwards it went really well. And so we, we ended up just like making a little video in his, um, in his living room. It was like, there was not a ton of thought, honestly, that went into it besides, um, you know, making sure that the harmonies were, were cool. And it's funny, because it's, it, like you said, it's different enough because I can tell when well, a friend of mine covered our version of it at a show and she didn't know I was there and I was watching it. And I thought, I think that is Mike and I's version just because of the slight variation and in, in melody that um, she sang. And afterwards I asked her and she was like, oh yeah, totally. That, that, was, that was you and Mike's version, which is just funny, which I you know i I think that's like if you're going to have the opportunity to redo a classic it's probably always good to do something a little different
0: you bet and uh, and there were great little touches for example uh the way he picks out the the piano solo he doesn't do it exactly the same he finds a few similarities and has a little fun with it you know so it's not too pretentious and then you're wonderful um and i think this is what you were alluding to um, your way of singing the melody a couple of times, where you would sort of take a little downward trip in your vocal, um, that was very cool.
1: <laughs> oh, that's cool. I'm glad you. I'm glad you liked or noticed that. That's cool.
0: Yeah, and uh, well, speaking then of, of cover versions, Radiohead. Mm. Um, yeah. You know, uh, for a person who does. What I I guess folks would say you do a lot of singer songwriter folk music et cetera. Radiohead is to me just vastly refreshing. So tell me about your Radiohead experiences.
1: Oh, I mean, yeah, I'm 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 completely obsessed with with Radiohead, and um, I wanted to cover something of theirs, and I, I've always loved that song a friend actually suggested that i do it and um again it was one of those things that just kind of came together quickly without much thought and i think that also is a testament to to the songwriting because it was easy enough to to play and memorable and beautiful and i think in the hands of you know anybody that could hold a tune that song would would stand um and you know I, yeah, Tom York is is a genius because it, to me they are they are the modern day Beatles because they did, you know, they changed the musical landscape, truly, in, in so many different ways for, you know, so many artists from you know and and across different genres and. Um, of course they're British also that helps <laughs> in my comparison, <laughs> but yeah, they're, they're my absolute favorite band. No, no
0: question. It is. Uh, and they, they have, so su- they strive to be different, right? They, every time they do something new, they're trying to create something different, which is that's Beatles one Oh one right there. Um, I love the way you sing those surprises. Um, I found myself, uh, and you know, I've heard Radiohead and Tom York version many, many times, but I found myself hearing the words when you sang it.
1: Oh, that's cool.
0: Yeah. And it, it, I started to realize more for the first time, and maybe I should be a better listener. I apologize, Radiohead, but um, (laughs) I found myself really understanding what it was about in your hands better than in theirs. Um, Oh, wow. Uh, and it too is a kind of sad song, isn't it?
1: Oh, it's it's devastating. Those lyrics are uh, unbelievable. A heart, heart that's full up like a landfill. A job that slowly kills you. Bruises that won't heal. It's that's so good. That's devastating. He's also like the the king of writing sad songs. Oh my
0: and- gosh! Right. <laughs>
1: I mean yeah like the real the real darkness kind of sad tunes but i I just i I love it again it's it's so deeply speaks to me and um it makes me happy that that's my happy dance music is radiohead
0: (laughs) you know i don't know
1: what that says about me but
0: (laughs) well i i think it unfortunately it's about me too and and i think many others this though, that, that verse actually gets much more damning, right? You look so tired, unhappy, bring down the government. They don't, they don't speak for us. It takes a quiet life, a handshake of carbon monoxide.
1: I know it's, it's fucking insane. And all, you know, uh, my, my partner and I have talked a lot about like what, the song means and what's so great about it is it's so three-dimensional because to him he was like oh that's like about somebody wasting away in a cubicle and to me I was like I actually think he's speaking to his own fame and his own life like I think he's speaking to his own job that he probably loves but it's also like slowly chipping away at him and he would love to take a quiet life do you know what I mean um but again I think the lyrics are so broad and ambiguously beautiful yet like um very spe- specifically general and 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 which you know it allows people to take you know insert their own experiences into it
0: right and i i read a handshake of carbon monoxide i mean i don't know if the person's in a cubicle or if they're in their garage with the door down <laughs> you know and yeah. <laughs> they're contemplating suicide it's just uh he knows how to get to the darkness tom york
1: He, sure, he surely does and and it, he lives there which is you know he's a voice for for a lot of people and that's I feel like that's that's when you know you've you've like really done your job as a songwriter
0: <laughs> you know when you thinking about okay computer right and uh Karma police, you know. When will the karma police come for you? It, it's <laughs> oh. that's not necessarily sad so much as hopeful, you know, in that kind of uh, sardonic justice way.
1: way. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He's also really good at. This is another emotion that, um, not you know, is, is hard to do well. It's like anger. He's good at sounding really pissed off. And I believe that, and that, and I, I, I absolutely need that. <laughs> I, need to, I need to feel justified in, in my, you know, angst.
0: Yeah, he's and not that, faking.
1: <laughs> no, and he's not doing it for anybody. That's just so clear. It's been so clear from the beginning, and I, I, I look to that.
0: So when you're working on a, a new album and you're contemplating – the next thing how how does that kind of how does a project like that emerge you know are you in a are you in a situation like the beatles where george martin is saying by the way um you know you need to have an album next month um or or how how does how does that how do the rhythms of that process take place for you
1: well my george martin would be probably my label <laughs> Um, you know, and they're not like, they don't make any demands. Uh, I, there's kind of this like arbitrary timeline that we're all kind of, we all kind of operate under. And it usually aligns with my own hopes of when, you know, new music will come out. But, you know, for me, it's music first, always deadlines are just a means to get me there. And right now, now that the album's been out for you know, more than six months, probably seven or eight now. I'm I'm writing again, and um, just just trying to find my creative center. And it's always a little horrifying at the beginning. I'm always just you know I, no matter what, always feel a little bit rusty and um, afraid that I'm not going to be able to do it again. And it's it's that's the most exciting part is is kind of coming. Um, through the other side of that fear is finding songs again. And I love that more than anything. I think I love that more than, more than touring, more than recording. It's like actually finding it and feeling like, Oh, this is good. I found something good. And I think that only happens by continuing to just be boneheaded about it and <laughs> try again and try again and believe <laughs> it's like, Songwriting is being the ultimate optimist. It's, you, you are constantly, you know, having to deny yourself <laughs> and hope that there's something better underneath underneath all of, all of yourself. <laughs> <laughs> hope that there's something in there, basically. <laughs> um, but really, like, all the best songwriters, it's like, when, when they find a good lyric, it's always earned. Always earned. Leonard Cohen always said, like, I'm lucky if if I write one good lyric a week or something like that. And um I always think about that. It's it's not, you know, it's easy to to sort of take the cop out of like, oh well, they're just talented and they just, you know, they just vacation most of the year, and then when they want to write a song they or an album, they write it in a whole week. And it's like, that's just not true. It's, it's, you know, it it usually just takes a lot of time.
0: That makes me think of Paul McCartney's effortless bass, you know, parts that he would spend eight or nine hours recording.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's like, it's, it's the, the, you know, the ultimate form of irony. It's like the most effortless things take so much effort. And, you know, that's kind of the, that's kind of the deal.
0: Everything Fab Four is presented by Salon.com The premier news, politics, innovation, and arts website For more information, visit EverythingFab4.com where you can learn more about our podcast and my latest Beatles-related books including John Lennon 1980, The Last Days in the Life and a forthcoming biography about beloved Beatles roadie Mal Evans The Everything Fab Four theme song, Seize the Day Is provided courtesy of Black Rabbit, the high octane Beatles cover band and innovative psychedelic rock project from Rockaway Beach, Queens, in New York City. Like what you heard today on Everything Fab Four? Be sure to subscribe, give us a rating, and recommend the show to your friends. Plus, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at EF4 Podcast. Distributed by Salon, Everything Fab Four is a Wonderwall production. Remember, It's a Beatles world, and everyone has a story.